Hello and welcome to The Jewelarian, the podcast for those who love jewels and their stories. With me, Josie Goodbody, jewellery historian and author of the Jemima Fox mystery series, which have just been optioned for adaption to the screen. Hello, in today's episode of The Jewelarian, I am speaking with Marie Betterly and David Schimmel-Pendick van der Roy about Russian jewellery and its historical context. They are the authors of a deeply interesting and encyclopedic and, of course, beautiful book on this subject entitled Beyond Fabergé. It starts with Catherine the Great in 1725 and goes all the way through to the sale of the Russian jewels by the Bolsheviks in London in the 1920s. And it's definitely worth buying. It's, it's quite wonderful. And I'm incredibly lucky to be speaking with you over in Canada, um, whilst I'm here in England, about this fascinating subject, which I'm so interesting. I think I got a lot of that from my father, who's a real um, Russophile. And um, I took him to St. Petersburg for his 70th birthday uh, 11 years ago. And we had the most wonderful time. He decided at each meal he was going to try something Russian. We have quite a few surprises. We had such a wonderful time. Anyway, firstly, Marie, I'm going to start with you. And could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Of course, your incredible childhood growing up at Hillwood, just outside Washington. So thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. So I was born in France, in Paris. My mother was French and my father was English. And they met in Paris in a restaurant after the war. And um, so I grew up in France. And then we moved to the U.S. when I was uh, 15. I have no Russian blood whatsoever. What happened is when we moved to the U.S., my father retired from the U.S. government because he had become an American citizen. He was working for the U.S. government. And after 30 years, he retired. And then he surprised us all by becoming a museum director in retirement. So, of course, my mother was... (laughs) delighted because this move, this new position required us as a family to move and onto the estate and live there. And um, for those of you who are not familiar with Hillwood, it's a uh, it's 25-acre estate in the middle of Washington, D.C. that was owned by Marjorie Merriweather Post, who was uh, the heiress of the Post serial fortune. And so she was very wealthy. But her third husband was ambassador to Russia in the 1930s and early 40s. And so she was posted in Moscow then. And that's when Stalin was selling off all these fabulous Romanov treasures just to raise cash for his five-year plans. Um, So that's when she started buying Russian art. And so today, Hillwood has one of the largest collections of Russian pre-revolutionary decorative arts outside of Russia. And so as a teenager, all of a sudden, I found I had never even heard of Fabergé before studying foot on Hillwood, but I, I found myself surrounded by Russian treasures. I mean, like kind of growing up in a museum in a way, I suppose. It, well, it was. It was a museum. Uh, we didn't, uh, just to specify, we didn't live in the house with the Russian <laughs> treasures. We lived in a butler's house. Oh, I bet <laughs> that was really amazing. <laughs> Which was nice as well, but it you know it was the museum. Yeah, but, so I was first more interested in the gardens because you know as a teenager. But then I realized you know I should really pay attention to what's inside, and that's where I started you know becoming interested in Russian. I left Washington and I joined uh, Christie's in New York, and I started out as um, well answering the phones at the front counter. I'm but sure. <laughs> everyone starts off pretty much. <laughs> 
But then I was hired as a gemologist because I was studying for my graduate gemologist uh, degree at the GIA. And so I was hired by Francois Curiel to catalog gems in, um, for the upcoming jewelry sales. And that was fun. Although I have to say that I was a little bit bored by the big rocks, like the D flawless diamonds and things like that. I mean, until one day I came across, there was a whole um, suite of jewels that came across my desk and they were Russian. And it was, they were from St. Petersburg, circa 1850. And there was, it was like a bracelet, a couple rings, some brooches. And then I was just captivated by, by them yeah I can imagine. by the beauty of these gemstones and the way they were cut and also the patina of the gold was just gorgeous so I that's when I started wondering what do we know about this piece you know who made it and there was just nothing out there uh in English about uh the jewelers that produced these jewels you know other than Fabergé so that's where my interest began really at Christie's and then, oh, yes, yeah, so then um, the head of the department had to move to London, and I became not head of the jewelry department, but head of the Russian department. Uh, oh, my goodness me. <laughs> and let's um, now swap over to you, David, um, and you, because you're a Russian professor, and obviously you co-wrote this book, given most of the historical context. Is that correct? If, and if how I may, you... I'm, not, I'm not actually... Uh... Russian, only a quarter Russian. Professor of Russian, I should have said. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, but um, so yes, so, so tell me what your part is. Um, no, I've always been a, I've always been fascinated by by Russian history um, because you know I grew up in Holland. My mother's French. We went to Paris a lot, uh, but my mother's father was Russian, uh, and you know that was always a big mystery to me. And remember, this was during the Cold War, so I was always absolutely fascinated by Russia. Now let's talk about this magical book, you know, starting off with Catherine the Great. Oh, absolutely. Well, actually the beginning of Russian history, Russian jewelry history is yeah. very, very rich. And when I first started uh, researching it, I didn't realize that it actually goes way before, it started way before the Romanovs, way before Catherine the Great, uh, with the Scythians, uh, when they left, you know, gold treasures in their burial mounds 2,500 years ago. Oh, gosh. So that, and by the way, if you go to the Hermitage, you must see the gold treasury room, which is where these Scythian treasures are still displayed. And very few people, at least from my experience, know about this room because when we were there, it was empty except for our little group. So gold treasury room, that's number one. Um, and then so the the history continued through, you know, through the Kievan Rus uh, period, which was, uh, I believe, in the 16th century. But before that, uh, it was uh, influenced by the... Um, Adoption of Christianity, because in 986, uh, Grand Duke Prince Vladimir uh, decided to uh, adopt uh, a, a religion for his, for his uh, pagan subjects, and he chose the uh, Christianity from Constantinople. And this, this would have really far-reaching effects in the future of Russian art and Russian jewelry because um, it would instill in the culture a, a grand desire for uh, pageantry, for luxury, and for that sort of thing, which would be reflected in the opulent treasures uh, that would be produced for 
under the Romanov period. But it also instilled new skills to goldsmiths. So this link with Byzantium instilled new skills for goldsmiths such as filigree, granulation, and cloisonné enamel as early as the 12th century. Oh goodness, really? Yes, absolutely. And, so, that, and you think that that came from Constantinople? Uh, yes, those skills did, did come from Constantinople. And then, well, under the Romanovs, of course, they were famous for their uh, extravagant lifestyle and their huge uh, treasury of gems, jewelry, and silver. But it was really the 18th century in particular where the empire experienced a glorious era of jewelry. And under Russia... Was that under Catherine the Great? Well, beginning with Empress Elizabeth Petrovna, who was the daughter of Peter the Great. That was 1741 is when she, she became empress because she loved jewelry too. And so this uh, Catherine the Great would actually usher in the diamond age in Russia right. as well. Uh, I think many people are familiar with Catherine the Great. She had a keen intellect, and she uh, was a huge art collector. And it's she pretty formidable, didn't wasn't she? I mean, I, she basically got rid of her husband. <laughs> yeah. really, he was bizarre. And she Don't got, get any ideas, Marie. Yeah, that's quite an amazing. To me, I always feel that Russia seems to be such a masculine country, and other European countries had had pretty kind of formidable women rulers. But Russia always seems such a, to me, such a masculine. Country. Yes, well, no, but that was the opposite in the 18th century. Yeah. So we're talking Empress. Actually, it was Catherine the First who started the the reign of of female rulers. Catherine the First was the wife of Peter the Great. So when he died, she took over in 1725, and then from from her reign on to the death of Catherine the Great, that would be 1796. There were five Russian empresses. That's incredible in the 18th century to have that many. I mean, pretty much the whole of the century was ruled by women. Then, absolutely right. And, so, and then they had they had the power of of uh, of, of making jewelry so important. Exactly, you hit it right on the head. So <laughs> that was it. That was it. There was a huge demand for for jewels and treasures, uh, and these they were driven by the empresses, especially Elizabeth Petrovna, as I said, the daughter of Peter the Great, who like. Apparently, she had she would change gowns up to ten times a day, and each new uh, attire required different jewels. So that oh, kept the jewelers busy. And Catherine the Great had her own like diamond room set up near her bedchamber, where she would invite guests to come play cards with the stones as the stakes. She's quite no, a girl. I love that. <laughs> So James Bond is in a way. <laughs> so actually, <laughs> but um, but actually, Peter the Great was the one who started the diamond treasury in Russia. So that was it was his idea, really, because he didn't have extravagant tastes in jewels. In fact, he preferred to eat from wooden bowls. But he knew that diamonds play a major role in broadcasting the power of the Romanovs, the might of the Romanovs. So that's when he set up the diamond uh, treasury. And that today is still in Moscow. It's called the Diamond Fund in Moscow. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about some of the jewelers who, because actually, I mean, you're right, people do, it's always Fabergé. There are so many other incredible jewelers, which is what your book is a lot of, about. And actually, I learned fairly recently that actually it was Fabergé didn't really become that well-known until they made that first egg in 1885. 
I mean, are there any of these jewelers around still? I know Berlin is is around. Absolutely. So um, you're absolutely right about Fabelchi. Actually, he wasn't, um, they didn't receive the title of court jeweler until 1885. And his father really had a small shop on the Borshaya Morskaya, Gustave Fabergé, and was selling, you know, very everyday kind of jewels. Um, but it was his brother who started um, uh, producing designs for objects that would make the, the firm so special. But so, yes, we're talking 1885. And when you look at the tenure of Carl Fabergé as court jeweler, it was only 30 years. And then you compare it to the reigns of the Romanovs, and that was 300 years. Yeah. So only one-tenth. And so there were 18 rulers before Alexander III who ordered that first egg for his wife. As I said, the Romanovs were known for their extravagant taste in luxury and jewels. And so, you know, who was making those jewels for the imperial court. And so I, I can talk briefly about 10, uh, 10, no, not 10, four, four uh, important. I love you to talk about 10. I've just got your book in front of me just um, to reference. Um, and I was just opened the first, the grand co- collar of the imperial order of St. Andrew. I mean, gosh, in 1795. Yes, yes, that's magnificent. So um, that was, that's all in the, in the Russian crown jewels and the diamond fund. But uh, I'll just talk about Jeremy Pouzier, who was the most probably, well, one of the best 18th century jewelers. And he was court jeweler to, to Catherine the Great and Empress Elizabeth. But he, his story is fascinating because he, uh, he left his memoirs and they were written in French because he was Swiss, um, but they've actually never been published in English. And we have translated them from the, from the French to the English and we're, we would love to publish them. But anyway, our chapter on Poussier is uh, largely based on these memoirs, but it's a fascinating story of a uh, palace intrigue and 18th century Russian court life. And yeah, it just I, describes the insatiable demands of these empresses for his jewels. And he was so uh, in demand that his, um, he was granted free access to the winter palace which was unheard of for anybody outside of the very close imperial family. So um, that was pretty incredible. So he also made wonderful jeweled um, bouquets of flowers, which are in also in the Hermitage in the diamond treasury room. But these were set with the most fantastic gemstones, Uh, not just from the far East because they were still being uh, carried in from the rubies uh, and the sapphires and diamonds from the Far East in caravans and purchased in Russia, but also from the Ural Mountains that were beginning to yield um, uh, huge quantities of aquamarine topaz and other precious stones. And anyway, so he would make these bouquets that are uh, that were worn uh, in the hair or on the bodice, but he also made the most important jewel ever. Yeah. Which was what what you were talking about, the coronation crown of Catherine the Great. And it weighed five pounds. I I don't think it's the heaviest one ever made, but um, in his memoirs, he describes uh, putting this crown on Catherine's head and being very much afraid that she would reject it uh, because it was so heavy. And apparently she turned to him and beamed with pleasure and said, that would be no problem wearing this for the six hour coronation ceremony. Oh my gosh. I'm looking at this picture of her here in her, in in the painting. Um, It's, I mean, 
my gosh. I mean, she also had the diamonds on her on her chest are absolutely incredible, aren't they? But that with an enormous, is it an enormous ruby at the top? It's a spinel that weighs um, yeah. just under 400 carats. It's the largest ever uh, oh it, it comes from Tajikistan. Uh, and the diamonds weigh 2,800 carats. And uh, it's just a magnificent piece. Uh, also in the diamond fund. Thankfully, it has not been changed in any way. And it was worn after Catherine the Great for oh. every single coronation by the male, by the men, by the czars uh, for their coronation. Including Nicholas. Including, including the Nicholas. Yes, absolutely. Um, just a couple of other jewelers. Yeah, Carl Hahn. Carl Hahn is unknown today, but he uh, was Austrian born in St. Petersburg and he uh, sold more diamond jewelry than anyone else to the Russian imperial family, to the czars. Then there's a wonderful uh, jeweler named Friedrich Kirchli, who was Swiss born. Um, and he was the favorite of the very powerful and enormously wealthy Russian Grand Dukes. And they bought his cufflinks and his bonbonnels in droves. Um, and, he's, oh, and he also made the design for the last empress's wedding tiara, uh, which is, uh, has disappeared, but the design is in the Hermitage. Um, but lastly, and this should never, uh, we should never not include this jeweler because he was the most important one in the 19th century was the house of Bolin, as you Bolin. And you asked if there were any that have survived, and Bolin has survived, and they actually um, fled to um, <clears throat> Stockholm after the revolution because the Moscow branch had retained their um, Swedish citizenship. They were able to leave Russia. Anyway, Bolin today is still in business, W.A. Bolin, run by Christian Bolin uh, in Stockholm. And now they've served like three Swedish kings. On top of, by the way, Bolin served seven consecutive sovereigns, beginning with Catherine the Great, as compared to Fabergé, who served just two. Um, they were by far the most important jewelers and the most expensive. So the revenue of Bolin was three times that of Fabergé up until 1895, mostly because of the high price of their jewels, even compared to Fabergé imperial eggs which were not that expensive. No, they just are now. Very, They very are now, for sure. What do you think it is about Fabergé that it is the name that one associates mostly with Russian jewellery and really with Russia? Is it the eggs? Yes, yes. I think that's the number one reason. We're still captivated by the eggs and the fact that um, they each contain a surprise yeah. that and nobody knew what the design was until that Easter morning when the Tsarina would open it up. And uh, so it was just mesmerizing. And it still is today. And there are uh, just a finite number, right? So we, there are 50 that were made for the imperial family. And most of them have been found. I think yeah. there's only six missing now. So that, of course, fuels our imagination, too, to find a missing family egg. The, the, the best ever kind of treasure hunt, isn't it? Yes. Um, and David, what is it do you think that, the, that Russia was? I mean, it's such an enormous country and, and I suppose enormous pieces of jewellery. Is there a kind of correlation between them both? Well, to a certain extent, yes, because jewellery broadcasts power. Yeah. And Russia, of course, um, you know, when, when it became 
part of the European family of nations. I mean, sort of it entered diplomacy under Peter the Great at the beginning of the 19th, 18th century. So it was a relatively young country for most Europeans. Europeans knew very little about Russia. Um, so Peter and his heirs all wanted to make sure that, you know, Europeans knew that Russia was not just big, but also very important. Uh, and so jewels are a way to broadcast being important. Um, there's also something about the Russian character. Russians love to, um, uh, you know, they're, they're not discreet people. Uh, they're, they're exactly the opposite of the British. There's absolutely no understatement when it comes to Russia. I know of a, a man, for example, who uh, bought a BMW um, and has, a, you know, an absolutely miserable little apartment. And he said, well, you know, everybody sees my car. Nobody sees my apartment. Um, yeah, so, I know, but I think a lot of people do that, don't they? They live in small houses, but they buy <laughs> amazing kind of cars on credit. Um, <laughs> but I think the Russians even more so. And, you know, the reason, for example, I mean, it, it, if it, it, Marie was talking about Russia's conversion to Christianity back uh, at the end of the 10th century. I'm trying to find out why, what the, what the, what the connection of, of Christianity and jewellery has in Russia. What's the kind of... Why did you kind of bring this in, into the kind of conversation? Well, because, um, you know, Byzantium was far more civilized. I mean, Byzantium uh, at Constantinople in the 10th century was, was like Paris in the 18th century. You know, it was the center of Christian civilization. You know, what, what I mean, London, uh, you know, was, was basically just, just uh, you know, just, just some dusty little village on, on the yeah. river. Um, Paris, of course, was a bit bigger, but still, it was nothing compared to Byzantium, which uh, and and its capital, Constantinople, which which was a great the center of a great civilization, and so it wasn't so much. I don't think so many uh, Byzantine Greeks went up to, uh, you know, went up to Moscow. Uh, you know, it it would be like um, you know people from London going up to the Orkneys. Um, okay. I'm just it, wondering what it's the other way around. Russians, you know, his his subjects went to Constantinople to learn. Oh, they, so that's what happened. That's how they, they picked up on all the yeah. techniques and things. We, we spoke earlier about on, on our email that diamonds were found in Russia in the Urals in um, almost 200 years ago in July 1829 um, by Humboldt. But do you know why they weren't using Russian diamonds? I mean, were they not such good quality, do you think? No, um, I, I don't think so. I just think they hadn't been found. I mean, there were a, a few uh, deposits of Russian diamonds yeah. uh, in Kimberlite, but they hadn't, of course, discovered uh, the, the diamonds in Yukutia, which was, is that how you pronounce it, Dave? <laughs> Yakutia, Yakutia, way yeah, in the Far yeah. East. Yes. So that was done in the Soviet period. And then they found a huge trove okay. of diamonds that, uh, mm. that are very, I think it's the biggest mine in the world now. Um, and they're, um, you know, they're, they're very, very rich in other uh, resources in gold and platinum. And but the precious stones uh, were only discovered a little bit later and the diamonds as well in during the Soviet period. Yeah, because in that article, it, it talks about Humboldt kind of I mean, he was a geologist and explorer and being sent to find precious metals. And he just everywhere he went, he basically yeah. wanted to kind of strike not strike gold, strike diamonds. <laughs> yes. um, can you talk a little bit about enamel? Because because obviously we all think of, you know, again, Fabergé and the enamel eggs and the amazing kind of snuff boxes and cigarette cases and everything that you can enamel. But it, there's different types of enamel, aren't there? Yes. Yeah, so there's um, a few different types of enamel, but uh, the one that's associated with Fabergé is the guilloche enamel. 
And he also did other types like Picajour, but not so much. Um, so guilloché is, um, you know, the kind of translucent enamel that's applied on a guilloché ground or engine turn ground. So you can see through it and it, it looks like uh, moiré silk sometimes. It's quite beautiful. Uh, he perfected that, and uh, but he wasn't the first. I mean, there were Swiss enamelers who were doing that uh, long before. But... Um, in Moscow, there was something else going on. In Moscow, uh, the jewelry arts uh, was quite different, and, and the silver uh, from uh, St. Petersburg, which was really European and Western, um, thanks to Peter the Great, who founded the city as a window to the West. Um, but the enamels in Moscow were more cloisonné enamels, and um, they were uh, in... They were very, very popular in the 19th century because the uh, Moscow enamelers were looking even further uh, back uh, before Peter the Great to uh, Byzantine and uh, Kievan styles, you know, to inspire their enamels. And also the shapes themselves were very Russian. Okay. Like you have things called kofsh and, you know, the traditional Russian bowl, bratinas, big silver vessels, um, vodka cups, tea glass holders, uh, lampadas, you know, for icons and that sort of thing. And that proliferated in Moscow. And also most of the Moscow makers were actually Russian born, unlike those in St. Petersburg that were, you know, European trained or born in Europe. Uh, you have names like Ovchinikov, Klebnikov, Sasikov, Gubkin, uh, who were very uh, important uh, silversmiths in Russia, in Moscow. Um, in the and and did, they, did they make jewellery for, for the czars and for the um, aristocracy? Or was, were, or was it mainly the St. Petersburg kind of Western jewellers? Yes, well, the jewelry that was made in Moscow is still an area that we need to research because there's not much written about that. And the yeah, so that that is fascinating to me. Uh, we run across them when we see their names in the international uh, exhibition catalogs, you know, yeah. like jewelers from Moscow, and then there's a name there that we don't really recognize. But that's really there's not much out there, certainly not in English. So I'm I'm very interested in exploring this. These uh, the ones that are in our book. Some of them produce jewelry, like Klebnikov. Um, but um, the ones that are in the Moscow section are, you know, basically silversmiths. But okay. there was amazing jewelry made in Moscow of that, I am sure. <laughs> and do you think, David, do you think that, um, the, I mean, the downfall of, of, of Russian jewelry really was the downfall of, of the Tsar, the Romanovs? And Toby Faber, the book One Man's Masterpieces and the End of an Empire, Fabergé's Eggs. Have you heard of Toby Faber's book? It's fascinating. I'm afraid. I'm afraid I don't, and he's completely wrong, by the way. And but but is but it is wrong, is it? So so Faber well, of course. I mean, the you know Fabergé. Uh, you know, he certainly didn't cause the Russian Revolution. Maybe he's trying to use it as a metaphor for okay. for the for the, for the rituals the and the opulence. Uh, you know, and the disparities in in wealth. Uh, but let's not forget that Russia was not an, the only country that had disparities in wealth. I mean, anybody who's read Dickens will know that there were also great disparities of wealth um, in, in Britain. Um, you know, it was all part of industrialization. Of course. Uh, Russia before the revolution was actually 
fairly prosperous. Uh, it, it had a, a very, uh, very strong growth boom beginning at the turn of the 20th century. There's nothing inevitable about revolution, and whether Fabergé had been around or not, uh, that would not have led to its fall. The, the basic cause was Russia entered the First World War. It did disastrously. Uh, then the Tsar, being a bit of a Dumkopf, um, you know, abandoned his capital, uh, leaving his wife, who was even more of a Dumkopf, in charge. Um, and, you know, politics went to hell in a handbasket. And why do you think we didn't, the British didn't offer? I mean, they were cousins. They were first cousins. What, what, what was the reason, do you think? I mean, there's lots of this has been written about and discussed about. But what, what's your take on why? Um, it, was, it was complete cowardice. Cowardice. George V was absolutely cowardly. He thought, well, you know, there were social stresses uh, in England and in France uh, because of the duration of the war. Uh, you know, by 1918, um, you know, the economy um, was not doing very well in Britain. And uh, George V basically thought, well, you know, if I accept it, sorry, it'll make me even more unpopular. And then, um, so, and then, Marie, um, to come back to you um, before, the, before the end, um, of course, so many of them took their jewels. A lot of the, the Russians who were able to escape took a lot of their jewels with them. Um, and so that's why we do have so many incredible pieces of Russian jewellery. Can you talk a little bit about that and how they smuggled them out? Because the Yusupov family, they smuggled a lot of their jewellery out, didn't they? Yes. Now, I'm, I, I can't remember whether that was Maria Pavlovna or the Yusupovs. I think but, it was the Yusupovs. Um, Okay, so, um, but maybe they all did. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite possible. Uh, Well, you know, the private individuals that were able to to leave with their jewelry, well, that's what they did. They they took their jewelry and uh, unfortunately, many of them had to sell them sometimes gemstone by gemstone just to survive in Paris or wherever they ended up. So that's very sad. And it's... um, it's true that most of the grand parures that were made by Bolin and all the wonderful jewelers, I mean, they've just disappeared. There was one exception in um, 1978 at Christie's in Geneva when uh, Bolin's parure that was made for Grand Duchess Maria Alexandrovna resurfaced almost in its entirety. Amazing. And uh, yes, and then it was inherited by the uh, Princess Margarita of Denmark and Sweden, who was the eldest sister of the late um, Philip of Edinburgh. Um, And so, but that branch of the family managed to keep them all together so that uh, about nine lots came up at auction in 1978 that was amazing. Year of my birth. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I have to seek, seek them out one day. <laughs> well, they're in the book, by the way. There's yeah. a big color uh, picture of yep. uh, all that. Um, so I think really the, the, the vast majority of the, of the jewels, you know, disappeared. And yeah. that, that's what's so sad. And 75%, by my estimation, was sold by the Soviets of the Russian crown jewels uh, between 1927 and 1936. So, you know, if you're going to be optimistic, you might think, well, if it was sold to the West, it's probably still here. And yeah. who knows when these jewels will resurface. It's just that with the grand pieces, they're probably, you know, all broken up. Well, the Bolsheviks, um, well, of course, there was that enormous sale in the 1920s at, at Christie's in London. And yes. the Bolsheviks, didn't they? Because, of course, um, it represents, 
you know, as we've mentioned a few moments ago, jewellery represents power. To get rid of the jewellery is to cut the power once and for all. I mean, that's it's incredible, those photographs that you see of the tables of jewellery and just so many. And when you read the, the Fersman catalogue and all the, the, the listings of all of you, just think, my God, like, just, I mean, there weren't enough days in the year to wear. People nowadays keep saying, oh, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge is recycling a skirt. Well, I mean, they didn't have to recycle jewellery in those days because they had a new piece for every every occasion, it seems. Absolutely right. And some of those jewels dated back to the period of Peter the Great. So it's And been they broke a- them up and they just sold them. Yes. And so that's, that's, but, but thank goodness for this Firstman catalog, which is available online. Yeah. Uh, so you could see these jewels in the black and white photographs, but they're very high quality of, you know, of, of about 700 magnificent pieces that were, that form part of the Russian crown jewels. And it's a most complete catalog of, of the Imperial treasury. Um, so, so th- sorry, it's just thanks to GIA library that it's online because they have a copy of the original catalog. So for all of you listening, go online and have yes. a look at the catalog and be yes. amazed. Um, and then just before we end, uh, can I just ask you, who's your favourite Russian jeweller? And secondly, if you were to ask David to buy you any piece of Russian jewellery, <laughs> and we're talking about any piece, say you'd won the lottery, what would you think would be would be what you love the most out of all the pieces that you've kind of worked with in your career in Russian jewellery? Tough question. Well, um, he's taken his mic, he's taken his head, the head's head off. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to say that, um, you know, there's some, there's some jewellery that I, can I give more than one thing? Of course you can, my goodness. Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> no, because there's some jewels that I, I would, I could wear and that I would love oh. to have. And uh, I and actually I did have, but I no longer do, so I should never have sold. But one of them was uh, a, a bracelet that had these charms by different Russian jewelers, and so there was, and it's in my book. But there was a Fabergé uh, purpurine, which is a red stone, uh, and gold swan pendant. There was uh, a pendant by Tillander, which was a moss agate, fabulous egg. There was a heart-shaped pendant by Bolin. Oh, no, why and did you sell it? I can't bear I don't it. know. Oh, <laughs> Oh and uh, I just love that piece. And, you know, but I'm happy because I can look at it and think about those wonderful and days. And you did wear and, it. And I did, yes. And, um, but the, the thrill about that was that I could identify the, the different jewelers, which yeah. to me is just amazing. Uh, I would say if I could have one thing, it would be one of the uh, magnificent uh, jewelry bouquets. Gem gem bouquets in the in the Hermitage by Posey. I would be very happy with that, and I would wear it in my hair. <laughs> well, I can, I can put it my two, my two cents worth. Um, my tastes are much more modest. Um, what my favorite piece would be actually Nabjada. When I was sixteen, uh, I met my aunt Nina, who was the brother sister of my grandfather, and she had been married to a colonel in the um, <clears throat> Empress's cuirassier. Uh, now he was Uncle Serge was already uh, was already longer with us. But when you walk into her apartment, the first thing you saw 
was um, his cuirass and his helmet with the two silver double-headed eagles on top. Oh, my uh, goodness. And I would love to have had that. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to leave you there. So um, thank you both of you for this wonderful, lovely evening that I've had talking to you about Russia and um, and Russia's beautiful jewellery. And, um, and yeah, I just hope that everyone now will go out and, and, and get your book because it really is. It's not just a jewellery book. It's a kind of completely, you know, combat, his, his very historical book and, and makes a lot of sense as to this incredible jewellery that they commissioned from, from all these different jewellers who weren't just Fabergé. Yes, thank you very much for having us. Thank you.